Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. With me today is abundance teacher and money coach, Jody Lynn Creighton. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. You know, as we were getting ready to do the show today, Jody Lynn and I were talking about stuff going on in our lives, and we realized that there was a common thread, and that common thread is going to be the basis for our conversation today. And something we've talked about in the past year on the show, I've talked about it with many co-hosts and guests, but we haven't talked about it in a while. I think it's a good one to bring up, and that's the question of boundaries, personal boundaries, business boundaries, where the two cross, where they disappear entirely. Boundaries, they're big. They're huge. Yeah. They're, they're huge. And, you know, we're kind of, we as a society, in the terms of society as a whole, we have created this yes philosophy of like just saying yes to everything, mm-hmm. including the things that we don't particularly like to do because we feel like we should or we have to. Unless it's the drug war, then you're just supposed to say no at all times, regardless of what is is going on there, which is about as intelligent, but that's another topic. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, But it's so interesting, the, the journey that one has to go through to be able to say no. Mm. And it's kind of messed up. Uh, well, I'll take the word kind out and you got it. <laughs> it's messed up. It's messed up that we have, you, you know, and I don't know, uh, you could probably speak to the male experience, obviously more than I can, because I'm a woman. Um, mm. but, well, how um, about that? We've got a male and a female on the yeah, show. That's so cool. We got both viewpoints. <laughs> we got both perspectives. But, you know, from a female perspective or from a woman's perspective, I find it difficult to say no. And when I do say no, I have, I have in the past mentally prepared a statement of defense and justification to go along with the no. Wow. And, you know, this is a, a harsh, um, correlation of things, but it was what really opened my eyes. Like if you were in the middle of a sexual encounter and you said no, do you have to justify yourself? Oh boy. Yeah, that, no. Yeah. That, that's an important uh, question too. That has come up with couples everywhere around the world. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a big one. Yeah. Um, and, and there is, there is room for confusion on that mm-hmm. because for, Ooh. for many people, it's a way of expressing, I want more. And that, that creates all kinds of issues. Oh yeah. That's a different rabbit hole. (laughs) The point is, it can be confusing. It can be very confusing. And I think it's actually led to some very unhealthy cultural results. Mm -hmm. There are a number of cultures where, quite frankly, male dominance, not just sexually, but in every way, is extremely unhealthy. Mm -hmm. It's just plain extremely unhealthy. And we can all think of many of the examples of them. But I don't think that even the people who live in those cultures really have a clear grasp of just how harmful it is to everybody involved, mm-hmm. not just to the women, to everybody. To everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it was the first time when I started to think in that context, if I was in a sexual encounter and I said no, 
meaning I want this to stop now. This is my decision. No. Right. Um, I shouldn't have to justify that. No. And so it brought me to the question of why do I feel I have to justify any of the other decisions that I'm making when I say, no, I don't want to do that. Why do I feel compelled to build a case for myself on why it's okay for me to say no? Why isn't it just enough that I don't want to? More importantly, no is valuable. Yeah. I'll give you an example, not a sexual example, but I'll give you an example from the real world that actually occurs a lot. I encountered it for the first time in the southern U.S. Um, when Louise and I lived in Virginia is when mm -hmm. I first encountered it. It is part of Southern cultural society that has kind of emerged over the years. Uh, but we found it when we were hiring for uh, her business. She had a gardening business down there, and we were hiring for her business. We would hire people, and they'd say, yes, I want the job, and they never show up. And it happened a lot. And we couldn't understand. Why would they keep saying, yes, I want the job, but not show up for the job? And they would never show up again. And then finally one day, I don't remember exactly how we realized what it was, but we finally realized the culture they grew up in was one where it was very parent dominant. With the father and mother, it was always, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And saying no was not accepted. Mm -hmm. Learn to say yes when they meant no. That's incredibly confusing. Incredibly so confusing. Incredibly. So there's an example of where you really needed no, and without it, it created chaos and dysfunction. Yeah. Try running a business when you, your employees all say, yes, I'm there, and they don't show up. It's not fun. Let me let you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, being from Canada, Canadians are super polite. <laughs> so it comes, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. We have this culture of, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And saying yes, maybe not to that same degree that you were talking about, but a lot of things. I spent a lot of my life just trying to appease other people and say yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how many different ways did that create chaos? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and misery. Mm. And, you know, I really, I felt like I couldn't stand on my own two feet because I stopped trusting myself because yeah. I was looking for everybody else to tell me what to do mm. and what was right. So then when you have spent, you know, decades doing that and you decide you're going to stand on your own two feet, make your own decisions, saying no was hard. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's reversing a, a long-standing momentum. We yeah. talk about momentum a lot, right? That's a momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's shocking for the people who are around that are witnessing it because they're not used to you saying no. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, what got into her? Yeah. Who's she? I don't even know her anymore. <laughs> what? She's so mean. <laughs> yeah, she's so mean, right? <laughs> uh, I remember this one conversation. Um, so with, with my brokerage business, going to events is like a really big thing. That's, you know, they drive it pretty hard. Like that's one of the 
cornerstones. You got to go to all the events. If you're going to be a great leader, you got to lead by example. And your example is going to all of the events. And there was quite a few. And at the beginning, I really liked them. And then when I went through this spiritual ascension, if you will, I decided that the energy at at most of them or the collective energy that I was experiencing when I was there was one of scarcity Mm. and that I didn't, I didn't want to be around that. I needed, I needed time and space away from that and I needed to create a boundary. And I remember when I said no to going for the first time and, you know, I, I have a certain status at that organization. So I have to like uphold the status or whatever. So this was a shocker that Mm. I was not going to go. And it was so interesting because I noticed in my language when I was having trouble saying no, I would say something to the effect of, I don't really think I want to go. It's not a bad way to start. Not a bad way to start. It still leaves the door open. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that I was leaving this door open for them to debate or ask questions or, or whatever for me to have to justify. Right. So then I tried closing the door and said, no, thank you. It's not for me at this Ooh, time. That's nice. I like that. That's good. Yeah. And it was so interesting because one of the responses that I received back was, oh, well, let's just talk about it tomorrow. I'll just give you a call tomorrow and we can talk about it. If you think no. about it overnight, you'll change your mind. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I have said no. So if you mm-hmm. want to call me and at this point, because I have a little bit of a stubborn streak, so... When I dig my heels in, I dig in hard. <laughs> so, so I had decided I'm at absolute no. And then when this individual said that to me, I said, no, if you want to talk because you want to talk to me tomorrow about whatever life in general, whatever, perfect. Call me. If your only intention is trying to convince me to change my mind, I have already told you no. And I am not open to that conversation. So kindly words. That's a strong boundary right there. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. But it was hard Mm. the entire time I was, you know, second guessing that. And actually me and my dad were having this conversation this weekend. Oh, really? Boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so caught up in so many things that weren't really aligned with my values and going in this direction of like artificial happiness, if you will. And it was really my husband that gave me the courage because when in those moments precisely, I'd be like, I don't really want to go. And he'd be like, all right, just say no. Like, mm-hmm. I can't say no. Why? Well, I don't know. Like, it's going to be <laughs> bad. What do you mean? Like, you're an adult. Make a decision. You don't want to go? Say, I don't want to go. And he's very, like, black and white like that. Like, who cares what they think? He doesn't care. So because I had him in my corner, I had somebody to protect me almost, to to stand with me mm-hmm. as I was, like, making this stand. And I don't – I think I eventually would have figured it out and been able to stand on my own two feet. But having him to to support me and whatever decision, like, if it was to go, he would support me in that. Mm-hmm. If it was to not go, he would support me in that. Whatever I wanted that was going to make me happy, that's what he would support. Yeah. So I had somebody who was unconditional in their support for me. And without that, I think it would have been way more difficult. That's huge. Oh, yeah. That's having that kind of person in your corner. That just 
jacks up your confidence. I don't care who yeah. you are, where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really great. I'm glad that he does that. You, you, everything I hear about him, he's he's a great guy. I like him. He is. Yeah. <laughs> he's my favorite. <laughs> I can tell for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> These are really great points, though, that you're bringing up about the value of boundaries, because I think we often think about boundaries as if they were troublesome, mm-hmm. as if they were a challenge, as if they were difficult, but they're actually really good. Mm-hmm. They're actually very beneficial. I'm not sure we I give ourselves enough credit for that. No, I don't think we give the boundary enough credit for that. Well, either, true. You know, yeah. we look at it as a, a negative thing, like we're cutting ourselves off for some, from something. And, you know, when you look at it in terms of uh, abundance or the law of attraction, it it's like almost something that you will lose because you're not doing X, Y, and Z. Well, it always comes down to that scarcity. Like, oh, if I set this boundary, then I'm going to lose something. But will you? Hmm. It seems like it. I think it seems like it because we're afraid. Yeah. Because fear will convince us of all kinds of stuff. No. Oh, yeah. Tiger's chasing you. <laughs> Funny thing is none of it has to be true. <laughs> Well, in reality, what is true? What is absolute truth? Yeah. I mean, how many people have pointed out that the number of things we're afraid of compared to the number of things that actually were fear, something to be afraid of mm-hmm. is, is a pretty disproportionate proportion. Ah. <laughs> it's like, you know, a thousand to one or something. Mm-hmm. It, it's crazy. We, we, we make these things in our heads. We invent, we, we generate fears. Yeah. Um, and I was actually thinking about something kind of related to this earlier. I, I have this thing and I have had it for quite some time. I, I've, I've very gently brought up with guests who've been on the show and so forth. I had this thing about the word ego because almost every time that the word ego comes up in a conversation, the person I'm talking with references it in a way that suggests that it's getting in the way. Mm. Or that it, you know, the most that, and, and I even got this the last time I asked the question earlier this week of, of a guest, I, I got the answer that said, well, the ego is there to, to protect us, to keep us safe. And that, that's about as far as people are willing to go with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really inadequate. The reason yeah. I think that's really inadequate is there's a funny thing about the word ego. I mean, you know what the origins of the word are, right? It's, it's Latin. No, I don't know. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I was actually going to just Google it. <laughs> no, that, that, that's what it, ego is from Latin. It means I or identity. So your ego is your identity. Okay. Mm, now, here's an interesting thing. When we want to talk about our identity, but we want to talk about it in a way that says it's getting in the way, we make it Latin. Because if we make it Latin, that in some way separates it from us. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't. But isn't that what we do? We, yeah. we, we talk about the ego as, as if it were this external thing. Totally. Right? And yeah. it gets in the way of our inner being. I mean, that's just plain dysfunctional. Because we are our ego. That is our, our identity is our ego. That's what it is. Yeah. And it, well, it's... It, it is you, you are it, and it is very fluid, yeah. or it could be perhaps very fluid because 
how you identify right this second um, may be completely different in six months from now or a year from now or five years ago, I would have identified my identity. That ego piece of me would have been completely different. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. A lot of people use it in a derogatory context of, of you need to have an ego death. Um, and, and I do believe that we need to shed the layers of that I am because who yeah. are you really? You know, and I think the journey of that is, is defining and redefining and being creative with who you are because you are just energy. Right. Like if you try and boil it right down, who are you? I am, I am a sack of skin and <laughs> bones and like, and maybe that's not even me either because that changes over time too. So what, what, what am I? Energy? Well, the best ex- description I've ever heard, I think this is an Abraham Hicks description, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of it. Uh, but the best description I ever heard is that we are extensions of source energy. So yeah. if I think about that, what is that? What, if, if the identity of a, of a person is an extension of source energy, how does that look? Well, from my perspective, source energy is the energy of spiritual energy, is the energy of all things. Yeah. All matter is created from energy, literally from source energy, from spiritual yeah. energy. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then what would be an extension of source energy? Well, it, it would be a form. It would be a construct in matter. Okay. So if our identities are a way of expressing the way that we think about ourselves, feel about ourselves and so forth, in the context of our interface, our boundary with this world that we interact with, this physical world, this illusionary world, we're often reminded that it's an illusionary world. It is an illusion. It's an illusion created by source that is able to manipulate matter and turn it into this physical universe that we live in, which is pretty damn cool. Mm -hmm. But if that's what we are, then the extension of us is the identity. The identity is the extension. It's, it's kind of like the interface with that extension. If you have, if, if you almost think of like a, like a fiber, you know what fiber optics look like, right? Yes. Fiber optics are like these little, they're like tube light things. And, and you can send light through them, which is by basically how data gets sent and so forth. And they're usually bound together, kind of like, you know, strands of, of, uh, of, of, of a rope or something like that, right? And all these different strands, they're all bound together. They're all transmitting this light. So we are like the fiber optics. We are light beings. We are all bound to each other. We are all interconnected, but each one of us is transmitting this beam of light. That's the extension of source energy. And the tip of that fiber optic is the identity. So could it be like the, the filter, like the way that the light is projected the way that the light comes out of the fiber optic cable is that is that the identity is that what makes us different yeah we could look at it that way i mean there are a lot of ways this is a metaphor so we could look at it a lot of different ways whatever way we want to um for me whenever i think of it of a fiber optic cable and i'm looking at the tip of it and i'm looking at it from like the fiber optic cable is pointing at me and the tip of it's pointing at me yeah i can see the light there yeah. That's that to me is the interface. That little bit of light at the tip of the fiber optic. That okay. to me is the identity of the source extension. 
And are they, in terms of our hypothetical here, just understanding fiber optic cables, do all of them look different? Does that interface look different on each of them or could it look the same or could it be both? Depends on your perspective. If you're looking at it from the perspective of an engineer who's looking at the light, they all, all the light looks the same. Okay. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of a data engineer who's sending data over it, all the data looks different. <laughs> Whose perspective are you looking at it with? <laughs> well, I don't know. Another form's perspective. What's so interesting is that I was, I was just talking to my friend Heather a couple of weeks ago about different episodes for our, our YouTube show. And, hmm. and one of the ideas that we had come up with was this thought from, I think it's Billy Graham. Uh, no, I can't remember. He has the, um, woke, not broke book. Uh, he's got the Emerald Tablets book. It could, could be Billy Graham. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember if that's He was, him. He was a TV preacher for years. Yeah. Maybe I have a book right here. Oh, okay. It. This book, Billy Carson. I got the first oh, Billy Carson, right. different person. Billy Carson. But I saw a video with him and he was talking about how our DNA is almost exactly what you just said. The fiber oh. optics cable of carrying data from one place to another and that that our the amount of data storage i'm going to wreck all of these numbers because i'm not a computer person but like a fleck of your skin from your hand the amount of data storage within that fleck of dna is like astronomical you can't even understand how much data can be housed inside of that oh yeah so i think our um your explanation, your hypothetical is, it is a lot closer to the actual <laughs> construct than we can even comprehend. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, you're right. It's one of the cool things about fiber optics because a single, a single fiber in a fiber optic cluster does carry enormous amounts of information. I mean, literally right now today with what Data engineers are able to send what they're able to transmit over fiber optics. It's actually a tiny fraction of what the fiber optics could potentially handle. It's just that we've only been able to figure out how to transmit this much. <laughs> and and maybe that is the ego, is that we have all, like, I, the visual that I get in my mind is that on the other side of this data cable is all of the information that ever existed, ever, 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 all mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But we only know how to transmit less than 1%. Mm -hmm. You will maybe even less than that, like, uh, uh, you know, 0.01% or something through this cable. And then it's showing up as this when mm -hmm. you're looking at it from the data engineer's perspective. But that could be us. We have yeah. access to all of the data, but we've only figured out how to exhibit or how to, to, transmit a very small portion of it. And, and then if you want to tie in the concept of epigenetics, that's where it gets really kind of fun. Yeah. Because epigenetics, of course, that's where there's, there's like this, this group um, knowledge base, so to speak, that, that can be transmitted from one person to the other in a method that science has never been able to you know, nail down exactly how it gets done. Um, many of us who talk about what we talk about, we say, well, it's source energy. They're transmitting it over source energy, but science hasn't been able to identify that. So they don't say that. Uh, but nevertheless, anybody who taps into that can not only utilize it, they can draw it. They can, they, they can retransmit it. And from the perspective of the metaphor we're using of the fiber optics, any single strand of fiber 
may or may not have that particular information, but if another strand does have it, it can grab it and pull it in. So yeah, it's only got little tiny fraction of access directly, but indirectly it has access to all of it. It has access to the entire database. This conversation is blowing my mind. When you put it in like context of the matrix and everything being coded, it makes sense that we have access to all of this stuff. And if we just knew how to plug in, Mm. for lack of a better term, plug into all these different areas, what we see, who we are, is completely different. That structure. So, so now that we've blown your mind, let's blow it a little bit further because we oh, were talking God. about boundaries before. <laughs> boundaries fit in with this beautifully because what we're almost describing is boundarily less data. Yeah. But because we, like you were pointing out, we can't handle more than a fraction of that. We need the boundary in order to make sense of the data. So when we look at from the broader scheme of things, boundaries are essential to our ability to interact with our own world. Yes. And perhaps, or perhaps. I love the way you phrase that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know which. I'm just going along this stream of consciousness. Um, Perhaps we're sourcing from the wrong place. You, you know, everybody, including myself as a teacher and a coach and a healer, like mm. everybody says, go within to change the out, like mm. without the mm. outside. But I think we've been, because we're boundaryless looking at our society and we don't know how to say no and we just go along with the flow and do what everybody else tells us to do to be successful, we're sourcing all of the stuff that is out here Mm -hmm. when we need to set the boundary here and source within, because that is the true absolute knowledge. Whereas these are all just holograms, reflections of the interpretation, the engineer versus the, the other engineer, (laughs) the data engineer versus the cable engineer, whatever you call them, (laughs) perhaps. Well, I'll, I'll give you another piece to the metaphor that comes from the world of computers and I'll have to explain it a little bit because most people are not totally familiar with it. They may have heard the terminology I'm kind of counting on them to have heard the terminology, but I think most people have heard of the the term of firewall. Yes. And in a computer uh, context, a firewall is literally nothing more than a piece of software that filters. It decides we're going to let this data through, but we're not going to let that data through. That's all a firewall does. And a, a, a properly structured firewall stands in the middle of a data stream the entire data stream has to pass through that firewall and the firewall decides what to let through and what let, what not to let through. So it's how it keeps out malware and spam and, you know, computer attacks and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Now, of course, how well that firewall is built, that's another question entirely. We won't even go there for the moment. But the point is, that's what a firewall does. Okay? Yeah. Well, that's a boundary. A firewall is a boundary. And... The person who programs that firewall decides what to let pass the boundary and what not to let pass the boundary. And isn't that exactly (laughs) what bounds are all about? Well, yeah, when you have no boundaries and you're taking advice and heedance from every single person, they're all telling you what to do. You've just got a bunch of viruses that have, you know, gone past your non-existent firewall and are monking with all your stuff. 
rather than having that boundary and sourcing the information from this side and deciding, no, I'm going to be more strategic with the things that I am allowing myself to go through or experience. And and, uh, the true use of boundaries in one's personal life is to have the equivalent of what we call in the computer world firewall rules. Because a firewall rule is what do you allow in and what do you not allow in? Yeah. So if we we translate over to the real world, we don't allow in being abused. So any data that comes through that is about abusing us, sorry, we don't allow that through our firewall. (laughs) That's the firewall rule. Yeah. But if we're going to be receiving data that helps us to enjoy a good breakfast, yeah, we'll let that one through the firewall. That's okay. So yeah. the same boundary is deciding. It's 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 not porous. It's not a complete dam. It's selective. It's more like a door. Yeah, like a door. Yeah, if you or have a series right of doors, you can enter. Yeah, a series yeah. of doors. Right. And huh. and it's doors that are programmed to what wants to come through the boundary. And who does the programming? We do. We do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. So the <laughs> firewall becomes the ultimate boundary. <laughs> wow. I think we're just yeah. cracking code to everything. <laughs> you even used a computer terminology to describe what we just did. <laughs> Crack yeah. the code. Crack the code. <laughs> it's so interesting because... You know, we look at life as, as these physical structures and static, if you will, like it's a tree is a tree and my cup is my cup and a desk is a desk. And that is all that it is. Mm. Um, but when you get into the context of these conversations, you realize that it's all about programming. Yeah. How about that? And energy and, and if you knew how to manipulate or change the frequency of something, everything would change. It's the whole reason why if you change, everything else changes. And, and how cool that we're talking about something where programming can also be beneficial. Yeah. We often think of programming as something that gets in the way, but it can also be very, very helpful. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this scenario, you're setting up programming, which is the firewall to allow or not allow the things that you no longer want into your life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is power. This is real power. This is tapping into that divine source creation, mm-hmm. that type of power where you have the access to all of the codes, all of the cheat sheets, all the Coles notes, you know, whatever that were ever created. You have all of them. It's are you going to access them? Or are you going to tap into them or not? And just to tie it up with a nice, neat bow on top, we talk about going inside, going internally for the answers. Mm-hmm. Guess where the software lives that runs the firewall? Inside? Inside. <laughs> it runs inside the server. <laughs> Look at that. It's a... Uh, this this conversation must be timely. Last night, uh, once a month with my uh, course, which is called More, where I teach abundance consciousness, we do a, a money shift session, if you will. And mm-hmm. it's 
every month is completely different. You know, they cool. ask questions or whatever. Um, like I see it out there sometime. That, I mean, that sounds really cool. Yeah. I would love to invite you. Um, yeah. Last night I was, I always channel before I go into the session. So I ask, you know, my guides as well as like the higher selves of the people who are connected to the course who are in it. Um, you know, if there's any messages and one that came through yesterday, I have to find it because it was just really, really beautiful. Um, uh, too many pages. Lots uh, of notes. Yes, that's right. I'm a paper person. I know you are. Uh, you're, you're a copious note taker too. Yeah, yes. That's how I process things. You're really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you are the artist. Don't get stuck painting the portrait that everyone else wants. Ooh, this nice. life gets to be your masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly that's what, what we're talking about. That's one of those things you have to kind of sit with, kind of like what we were talking about here, what we're doing here. We're sitting with it. We're kind of exploring it, playing with it. Yeah. You know, we've come up with a metaphor. It's a pretty darn good one, actually. Uh, so yeah. Explore it, you know. And then the it's more actually we the best it, film that I've ever heard. And and really yeah. what's fascinating about it is we took all of the, the right, wrong, good, bad out of the conversation yes. and put it into context. It's not yes. good or bad. It just is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, computers are literally just tools. They're yeah. damn good tools. <laughs> They're amazing tools. Yeah, they can be if you know how to work it, right? You have know how to turn it on. <laughs> P- people can swear at them. They can get frustrated by them. They can say, what the hell is wrong with this damn thing? <laughs> yeah. But in the final analysis, at the end of the day, it's always, God, how does this thing actually operate? <laughs> right? Because that's the miracle. Yeah. And that's... um that's what I think about when I think about the internet. Like, how does the internet actually work? How does, how does the internet work? How's there a cloud? I don't think like, it just baffles me that I heard once that the internet is something they discovered, not created. And I was like, huh? Not a bad <laughs> like, way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't understand though. How did, how was that just discovered? But in the context of this conversation, I, I'm assuming that we could loop it into almost like consciousness, greater consciousness, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure what the person who said that had in mind. I I don't know. Speak to them, but I can tell you how I could interpret it. Yeah. I can definitely, I can definitely create a scenario that, that does explain it that way. The pieces of the internet came together disparately, separately, without connection to each other. Okay. And so you could argue that they kind of came together without a plan without a, an overall overarching plan that was worked out by human beings in advance saying, okay, we're going to build this piece and that piece and that piece and that piece. And we're going to put them all together and we're going to have this bridge. It's not the way it came together. If this little piece was built to do this funny thing over here, whereas that little piece was built to do that thing over there. And this piece was done to build to that. And that was built to do that. And people started saying, well, you know, we could actually put these two things together and they would actually create a construct. And then we can pull that piece in. And, we, and all of a sudden we had an internet. Without actually anybody saying, well, let's build an internet. (laughs) Huh. It just kind of came together one bit at a time. One of the earliest pieces of it was email. Email existed without internet. That's the way it was originally created. But how did it exist without internet? (laughs) It existed within a computer. 
Within a computer. Not outside of a computer, within a computer. Within a early, computer. Early computing was done all within a computer. It wasn't until quite a bit later that communications between computers started to happen. But most, especially the very, very earliest computers, all the computing happened within the computer. All of it. So it was a self-sustained or contained structure. Right. Yeah. And then now it has access to others. In fact, you made reference to the cloud. The cloud is our modern way of describing interconnection between computers. And that was in and of itself a major breakthrough. That was, that was a mind-blowing breakthrough. And did that always exist and they discovered it? Did it always exist in what form? I don't know. It existed from the moment that somebody wanted to have some way to have one computer talk to another computer, and so they invented a way for those two computers to talk. Now, when they invented that way for those two computers to talk, did they think they had a cloud? No, they just had a bridge between one computer and another computer. That's all they yeah. had. Yeah. But that structure became a foundation for how you build a cloud. So did they know about the cloud or didn't they? Well, you kind of, kind of argue both ways in a sense. They could yeah. tell that could, that could be where it was going. Could they tell you at that point how to put that cloud together? Absolutely not. They had no clue. No. Hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. It yeah. is a lot. We are a lot like computers. We are. In, in many, many ways. We are biological yeah. computers. Yeah. The wisdom that our body carries mm. on and just like simple processes like breathing or your heart beating, like. Yep. For digestion, like phenomenal, phenomenally complex things yes. that we don't actually think about. They just happen in the background. And the depth of knowledge that's involved in all of that. We yeah. describe all that as subconscious because we can't possibly process all of that. No. We don't have the capacity to process all of that. It is no. not possible to the human mind to, to process all that consciously. Yeah. And hmm. those who try to do it, we have a term for them. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm almost making it sound like it, it, it's a, a bad thing, but it really isn't. <laughs> it's, um, oh, sure, what's the term now? Uh, autism. Really? Autism is the inability to in a sense, block out all that processing, being aware of all the processing at once to the point where it overwhelms you. And you can't function. Right. Like, and there are degrees of this. I mean, people who, who live yeah. on the autism spectrum have degrees of it. Alex Sandy, who does the Thursday show with me, is on the autism spectrum. Now, she's not severely autistic. She mm -hmm. has a small amount of Asperger's, which is on the autism spectrum. But to a degree, she experiences that. And she's talked about it too. And it's quite confusing. I, I once, um, I, I talked about getting my ears cleaned out one time. I went to the doctor because my ears were impacted with wax and he cleared it all out. And I came home and everything was loud. Like, you know, you, you, you pull the dishes out of the, out of the, uh, uh, the, the shelf, you know, off the shelf to put on the table and, and, and they, you know, they're crockery, they clink together, like clink, clink, clink. I mean, really, really, really loud. And she says, yeah. now you know what it's like to be autistic. Everything's that loud. Everything's Everything is that exam and exaggerated. Everything is just overwhelming. 
Wow. Yeah. Huh. I've always so, that like jogged my memory to, you know, when you're driving and the radio is loud and you're trying to figure out where you're going, you mm, will automatically turn the radio down turn and down. people to shut up because you need to like focus and concentrate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so funny. It has nothing to do with the eyes, but for some reason, hearing all of that noise is just too much to process all at once when you're trying to figure out where you're going. <laughs> we, we get amazed at the fact that we have what 60, 70, 80,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. But in truth, we have potentially, if we could actually process it, hundreds of millions or even billions of thoughts a day. Thank yeah. God we don't actually process them because we would be insane. Yes. And, <laughs> and maybe perhaps that's exactly why the ego was created. Sure. That's part of the safety part. Yeah. You know, so that you're not processing all of those things all at once. Turn, turn it into the non-Latin term, express it in the English term. That's why identity exists. Identity is our way of sanely interacting with this really cool world we've all jointly created. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> my, my brain is a little blown. <laughs> well, then let's bring it back to where we started, because thank God for all these boundaries that are in place. Yeah. Because those boundaries make it possible for us to enjoy mm -hmm. that interaction. And, and I firmly it. believe that's why we're here. We're not just here to experience it. Yeah, we're probably here to learn from it too. But I think the primary reason we're here is to enjoy it. Yeah. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think we're here to, I would say, experience joy. Mm-hmm. You know, to have that experience in its many forms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to talk about learning something, I think the ultimate thing that we're trying to learn is how to experience more of it as joy. Mm hmm. Because we yeah. have a tendency to judge it and say, well, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, 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 bad. But the real challenge is how, of course, we're talking about joy. What happens? My cat joy jumps up on the table. So, you know, there's nothing more on here, but, <laughs> but hi, joy. <laughs> there he is. Hey there, buddy. I think you heard his name, but, yeah. um, this, this whole thing about experiencing things that we don't like and then learning how to find joy in them. That's how you actually expand joy. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's testing or reconstructing <laughs> that identity of what is joy. Because yeah. if we have an identity, we've most likely given everything else an identity too. Right. So yes. we've identified joy as this little box. But the truth of the matter is we're not just this meat suit. We're so much more than that. And so is joy itself. So we're learning mm -hmm. how to expand the boundaries of joy. Yeah. This is a very deep conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. Started with boundaries and we went all across the cosmos, literally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we did it without a, a, a single out-of-body experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. We, were sta we stayed here in form. Yeah. And in form. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I do agree too. I think that that our experiences about 
the creation of the identity and seeing how fluid that is and how expansive, if you allow it, it can be too. Mm. You know, I always come back to the course, the very first personal development course that I went to and they got us all up. Like each one of us had to like go in a line and like, who are you? Hi, my name is Jody Lynn. No, eh, wrong. (laughs) Hi, I'm a mom. Eh, wrong. (laughs) Like they just kept doing it over and over again. Like, and I, you know, walking away from that experience, I was like, I don't know who I am. Like who, who am I? If I am not any of those things, if I'm not my career, if I'm not, you know, that I'm a sister, maybe I'm all of those things and nothing all at once. Like it just blew my mind. Who am I? It's funny too, because I've experienced, I haven't done that particular, um, uh, symposium or whatever it was, but, um, I, I've done numerous things like that. Other people I think have as well. I think about people who run us through that kind of a gauntlet, you know, at eh, wrong, at eh, wrong. And, and, and what has cropped up in this case in my mind is, is similar to what often crops up, which is really wrong. Who told you? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> who says, who says, because anything that we experience in our lives, that's part of our identity. So yeah. the person who's saying wrong, I, I, I ask them to justify that. How do you know it's wrong? Because as far as I can tell, your answer is wrong. The only thing that's wrong is your answer. Everything that everybody else is saying is correct. It is part of who they are. It may not be the entirety of who they are. But every single thing that every person was saying, I am Jody Lynn, I am Walt, I am a baker, I am a housewife, I am a father, I'm what, they're all correct to an extent. They're not the whole answer, but they're certainly part of the answer. Mm-hmm. So well, it begs the question, well, then what, what isn't part of the answer? Well, yeah. And I mean, your perspective on what is a mother, what is a wife is completely different depending on who you are. Like, yeah. My perspective of being a wife is different than every other person's in the world because it's mine. It is unique to me. It might be similar to a lot of people, but, um, you know, no one is standing in my shoes and has worn my shoes for the last 37 years. So it's not exact or precise or precisely the same Mm. as someone else's. Now, my suspicion is they were probably, I don't know exactly what they were doing in that workshop, but my guess is they were probably trying to say, well, you, you haven't identified who your inner being is. And okay, I get their point. Yeah, totally. But yeah. it also reminds me of a conversation I had with my sister over the last couple of days. I was helping her, I was building a website for her new theater organization and we got talking about stuff. And one of the things that she was telling me about is that there's this guru in India that her good friend went to for enlightenment. Apparently this guy enlightens you. Which okay. looked a little bit suspicious at first, but I was, I was willing to hear it out. So she gave me this whole thing and, um, I won't go into the, all the details of it, but the gist of it is that this guru is very disturbed by what's been going on here on earth. And, and he and a group of other gurus are trying to lead us to this golden age where all of the, the trials and tribulations are going to go away. And I sat there, I said, okay, yeah, well, good luck with that. <laughs> But fine, okay, I, I get what you're trying to do. And she was describing how they are able now to enlighten people using methods that they themselves took a lifetime to learn, but now they can do it in a matter of moments 
And when they do, the enlightenment not just affects that person, but affects two other people connected to them, two, two connections away, like six degrees of separation. So three degrees away, it affects yeah. people that far out. And they're so excited about that. And I think about what we talk about here on the program. I say, well, yeah, we've been talking about that for the longest time now. That just, you know, when you put out something, a vibration, it, it affects other people, positive, negative, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's going to affect other people. So if you achieve a level of, of enlightenment, it's going to affect people that you know, people that you don't know, people yeah. that you just are connected to in ways that you aren't even aware you're connected to them, perhaps. Yeah. And I kept thinking about what these guys were teaching. And I kept thinking, well, they're so hung up on the world is falling into this abyss of chaos and crisis and we've got to find a way to get to the golden age. And ringing in my head was, who says? <laughs> <laughs> who says? Who says we are you know, spilling into this terrible, dysfunctional world. Who says we have to achieve a golden age? Who says? Where did that come from? Who says oh, it yeah. isn't here right now? Yeah. 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 If it all exists on all the exact same time, like it all exists all the time, then it is here. And the fact that they're so blown away that they have learned how to enlighten someone else, that phrase really gets me. They enlighten someone else. The person doesn't enlighten themselves through their guidance. They enlighten someone else. Is that just I, I, a, a, a raise of their vibration? Like I, my, the questions that run through my head, well, what exactly is enlightenment? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's at the heart of it. What does it mean to be enlightened or, or to use my longstanding objection? I'm not a light bulb. <laughs> I'll light up. <laughs> I do want to light up, actually. <laughs> no, I, I think now I'm a, I'm a fiber optic fiber, but that's another topic. Yeah, <laughs> that we that, already yeah. I mean, the way that I look at enlightenment is 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 perhaps as I mull it through my brain, how connected you are to divine source, mm -hmm. and perhaps the way that they are enlightening people rather than teaching them how to enlighten themselves is somehow from there. If we were to put a hierarchy on vibrations, a higher vibration coming from a higher vibration, being in their presence and opening them up to a certain point that I could see that's maybe that's what they're getting at is they're rising or raising someone else's vibration to a certain point that you can't easily shift back once you go back into the regular world, or maybe perhaps you can. Um, it implies it, that. it suggests that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's the, the track that it's on, they're, they're, but I still see a couple of problems with it. One problem is higher vibration. Well, what is higher vibration? I think we all pretty much agree. Higher vibration is joy. It's feeling good, feeling love, yeah. feeling, you know, that's higher vibration is the good feeling stuff. Yeah. So we can very easily define high vibration as stuff that feels good. Yeah. Okay. And I think we all now understand that's a choice. Sometimes we find ourselves choosing the way we don't want to, but nevertheless, ultimately in the final analysis is the choice. Yeah. So what they're suggesting is I can choice somebody else to be high vibration and feel good. Well, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> no, no. And 
Well, it begs the question of how artificial is it? Because you can walk into a room where, like Tony Robbins, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. jumping. Rob, Rob. There is a reason why he does that is oh, yeah. to move the energy. That's right. Okay, so you're in that room and you can't help but be enlightened in this context that we're speaking mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. it to it. So mm-hmm. you are enlightened because you were in that room. Um, but I think the bigger question with their process that I would ask is what keeps you there? Cause what happens after you leave the room? Yeah. When you leave the room, are you mm-hmm. still able to access that? Is that your new norm? Like what, like, is it, uh, is it an elevator? Now you've just gone up because it feels like when you're at an event like Tony Robbins, you are moved in that direction and you're there because it is the, the conscious, perspective of everyone around is higher vibration but it's not a solid state if you will it's it's very fluid you walk away you leave that event and it stays with you for a while and perhaps for some people they carry that with them for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. but many drop right back to where they were before a different set point if you will and so, and certainly the implication that the, this guru that my sister is telling me about is doing is they're saying, we enlighten you to the point where you stay enlightened. That, that was certainly part of the message that uh, she was giving me. Oh. And so the question that I asked, that I asked myself is, well, what do they do to keep you feeling good all the time? Yeah. And that question alone causes me to doubt the story mm. because the only person who gets to decide how you're going to feel at any given time is you. Yeah. No one else can program you permanently to always feel something without you being directly involved in that equation. What about, <laughs> all right out there. What about, um, uh, like actual programming, like manipulative programming, like uh, mm-hmm. psyops, if you will. Mm-hmm. They, and I don't really know how that works because I've never been involved in one consciously. I have to say consciously because <laughs> <I'm consciously laughs> in another lifetime I have, or it's happened to me, or or whatever. But, um, but consciously, I've never been involved in that. But wouldn't that be programming someone to the opposite? Uh, if it was a nefarious thing, programming well, it, someone to be at a lower level of vibration, like stuck at a lower level of vibration. Is well, that what a let, curse is? Let, that's an interesting question too. Let, let's take it a step further. Yeah. Let's ask this question. If I somehow manage to get you to stay high vibration and I do so in a way that doesn't involve you, can it be truly said that you are high vibration? No. I think and it that's needs you. the problem with the whole concept of somebody else programming you to be enlightened. It requires you. Otherwise, you are not enlightened. Yeah. Well, I think that they could open the door and you could bask in the glory of enlightenment. But it takes you choosing to stay there or That's to right. take it with you. It yeah. can't be somebody else has, you know, laid this on you and, and, and then it's just going to stay happy. You're going to stay happy forever. I think that you are a part of the equation that 
that piece of you. There has to be that choice. Yeah. The old cliche is you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. The newer cliche is you can lead a person to ideas, but you can't make them think. And in terms of enlightenment, I'm not sure what the exact phrase is, but you can lead someone to enlightenment, but you can't make sure that he stays on. Yeah. That's right. I agree with that. You can't force them to stay in that space Mm -hmm. or continue to walk that in that space or that journey that they are when they are enlightened. And, And let's hypothesize that there was some way to actually keep them there. Yeah. Would that be a good thing? I'm not so sure it would be. Because if the person, if the identity, the, the, the ego, the identity of that person is in a space where they are not actively keeping themselves in that space, isn't that disempowering? I think so. I think so it's too. It's not your choice. Yeah. It's happening yeah. to you. It is now an external event. Yeah. And, and that begs the question of, is it actually possible? Because mm. everything is free will. Right. So if there's a way to get out of the negative side of things, like being programmed, you know, psyops, if you will, or a curse or whatever, there's a way to get out from under that. Yeah. There's they're a, all good. Yeah. There, because it's free choice. That is one of the universal laws is that mm-hmm. free choice. Mm-hmm then we also have to choose this too, or we can walk away from it or find a way out of it as well. And one of the best descriptions I ever heard about how to get out of a curse came from Louis D'Souza, who does the Monday show with me. He said he was once cursed. And the only reason that they weren't able to keep him cursed was because he remembered to reach out to a higher vibration. I think he reached out to Jesus. I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was something along that line. And as soon as he did, bang, the curse was broken. Hmm. Kind of makes you think. <laughs> it makes me think about all sorts of things, Walt. Yeah. <laughs> ah, we really traveled a lot. We did. Wow. <laughs> this is like, this is like the hour from heaven. This is woo. Yeah. just enlightening. Mm-hmm. Very enlightening. <laughs> yeah. And fun, <sighs> which is exactly what I, I advocate for. I think we're here for fun. This is been really, really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sad we didn't have a guest today. That didn't quite work out, but this worked out really good. Yeah, this is wonderful. I, I love, love talking this. To you, Walt. I love talking to you too, Jody. We have so much fun, and, and we learn so much from each other. And I love that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you very it's always much. Always enlightening. It is always <laughs> enlightening. It really is. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to next week. I don't know who our guest is going to be, but I know we have a guest scheduled for next week. So I will see you then. Thank awesome. you to our, our podcast listeners everywhere for hanging. If you hung in this time, if you hung in the whole show, I think I see you vibrating. <laughs> yes. Thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.